The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're in Mark chapter 9 this morning, going to be in verses 14 through 50. I think we've got some uh, really special guests today with us. I believe they're here. Bill, Bill and Christy, are y'all here? Bill and Christy Bowers here this morning. I was told they were going to be in our 11 o'clock service. I do not see them. Well, if you see them this week or in the coming weeks, Bill and Christy Bowers, back from Lebanon for about six months, uh, been TBC missionaries for a long time, some of our heroes and dear friends. Also shared an early service. My daughter was in town. Big week for my family. My daughter gets married next Saturday. Um, We're really excited about that, so pray for our family this week. My daughter's name's Maddie, and her fiance, uh, I never can remember. Uh, no, his, son, his, name's, his name's Danner, uh, and we, we love him. If y'all would pray for us this week, we are looking forward to celebrating God's goodness in their lives. We're in Mark chapter 9, continuing our, um, our series, The Good and Gracious King, talking about Jesus and his glory. Have you ever been on maybe a vacation or a retreat? I saw several of our families were at a family camp this past week, and you just have this amazing time. And then you come back, and it's like everything is broken, right? Air conditioner lines clogged, and your house is flooded. Or it's August in Texas, AC doesn't work, and your house is 140 degrees inside. Or things are falling apart at work, or you got a million emails, and it's like, man, this was such a great time. Can I just go back there and not ever come here again? See, Jesus' three kind of inner circle disciples have just been with him and seen the transfigured Christ. They've seen him in all his glory. They've seen the beauty of Jesus in this amazing way. He's shown so brightly. No one's ever been as bright. His clothes were so white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. They told us last week, and they come back down this mountain, and they come right into the battle. There's just a lesson even in that, that we come off the mountain, and we come into the battle, and Jesus comes in the mountain, or comes down the mountain where his glory has just been clearly seen, and he comes into the battle, and people kind of are wondering, well, is this the one, or his people the people? And this text today, really just like last week, the text today is really all about glory. And that that matters to us because we as TBC, we exist to make disciples for the glory of God. So we want to read this text about glory and then talk about it. We'll read about the first 15 or 16 verses of our text today and then just dive into it. Matthew 9, 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they saw Jesus. They were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he said, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? 
bring him to me. So they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw Jesus, when it saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, fell on, he fell on the ground, he rolled about, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood, it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind can only be driven out by prayer, or your translation might say by prayer and fasting. Well, God, we come to you, and as we look in your word, we pray that you'd give us understanding of it today. God, we pray that we would be a people for your glory. We pray, God, that our confession would be, we believe, help our unbelief, and as we trust in you, that we would see you as this beautiful, majestic, wonderful king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus' disciples, they are confused. They go to cast this demon out while he's kind of away with his inner circle and they can't do it and they don't really understand why and it's kind of fair that they don't understand why just a bit because previously they have cast out demons, right? In Mark chapter six, Jesus sends his disciples out and he gave them authority. He gave them power. They preached the gospel of repentance. They healed the sick and Mark six thirteen says they cast out demons. They were able to cast out demons but they can't cast this one out and they don't understand why and then there's this dad can you imagine being a father and you've got a child that's in such pain or a mother with a child in such pain and then you hear about this guy who who he's healed a paralytic he's healed a man with a withered hand he's raised up the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, he helped this lady who had this issue of blood for 12 years and he's got disciples and they're doing great things. They're casting out demons. This one guy from across the sea, oh, this, maybe I can get help for my son and you come? And they try and there's just nothing. This sense of desperation, of weight, of defeat. And Jesus says, how long has this been happening? He says, from childhood, it's thrown him in the fire, into the water. And then understandably, he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And so the father says, immediately, I believe and help my unbelief. So Jesus speaks to the spirit and the spirit has this great revulsion to Christ. He's come off the mountain and the kingdoms of Satan are trying to crush this mission. They're trying to stop what the good and gracious king is gonna do to redeem the world. They've been trying to shut it down and here's this one last ditch effort. 
the spirit cries out, it convulses the boy, it casts him on the ground so that everybody thinks he's dead. See, Jesus has been shown the king of glory on the transfiguration. He's told his disciples, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinners. I'm gonna be killed and on the third day I'll raise up. They didn't understand. He tells these three again as they're coming off the mountain, I'm gonna be mistreated at the hands of sinners, but I'll rise from the dead. They don't understand. He's been healing the sick, feeding 5,000, then feeding 4,000. And this boy is thrown down and he looked like a corpse and they said he's dead. It looks like the kingdom has come to an end. But then look at verse 27, these two beautiful words, but Jesus... So you get in a situation, you think, I I can't get out of this. I've sinned too much. He can't forgive me. But Jesus, the circumstance in my work is so difficult. But Jesus, our marriage is being torn apart at the seams. But Jesus, there's this spiritual battle that I can't win on my own. But Jesus, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Because what's death? To Jesus. And the disciples, when they had entered the house, they asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And then Jesus says, This kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, what does this what does this mean? Or only by prayer and fasting, as your translation might say, is Jesus just kind of giving them a plan? Well, if you had just prayed and fasted, this would have come out. And by the way, if you pray and fast, you can kind of get what you want. It's just a formula. Here's what you do. You ask for this and and skip a couple of meals and then you'll get what you want. Is it about a, a plan? I, I don't think it is. I think it's more about a posture. See, the disciples had kind of tried to go in their own authority. They'd presume their own power instead of relying on Jesus' power. But this one only comes out by prayer. Well, what kind of prayer causes this demon to come out? A prayer like this, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's this desperate father. I don't have what it takes, I believe, but will you help my unbelief? I need you in this moment, Jesus. I need your help. It's only through you. It's only by your power. And that's the kind of prayer that God answers. Help my unbelief. The disciples, they've got a posture of pride, but this dad has a posture of humility. The disciples, they've got a posture of independence. This dad has a posture of dependence. The disciples are wanting to show their greatness, as we'll soon see, and the dad is asking Jesus, show your greatness and help my son. It's only by prayer. Well, it's kind of confusing, though, because Jesus cast it out, and he didn't have to pray, right? Well, he, he didn't have to pray because he's not like any other person. He is, in fact, the good and gracious king. He is the king of glory. Oh, the disciples, that they would understand, we need to take all of our confidence and put it on the back of Jesus Christ who can carry us through the hills we have to die on and he can roll the tombs away that would keep us down. This one only comes out by prayer. The disciples don't get it. Verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he didn't want to anyone to know. Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. He's a man on a mission. He's going to die, to conquer sin and death, to take away the sins of the world. 
And he doesn't want anyone to know. He wants to go on his journey for he was teaching his disciples. He's just continuously telling them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and they're afraid to ask him. And just like in the transfiguration, this one mountain, he's telling them about another mountain where he'll die and then he'll rise from the dead. Three days later, it's about glory and the king of glory. I have a friend, he and I are good friends. We disagree theologically and we talk about the Lord often. And several years ago, we maintained our friendship and then we were, we were talking about missions and I was talking about the glory of God and, and my friend just not like harshly or rudely, but just as a friend, just kind of messing with me, goes, you've just got such a glory-based view of God. And I just said, well, is, is there any other, right? <laughs> See, that's what the book is about. If you'll just track with me for just a second, Colossians 1 says he created all things by himself and for himself. The heavens, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. He created people for his glory. Isaiah 43, he parted the waters for his glory. Isaiah 63, he rescues people for his glory. Exodus 20, verse 9, he put Pharaoh as king of Egypt to display his glory in all the earth. Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to take your heart of stone out and give you a heart of flesh. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You've profaned my name. So I'm gonna change who you are for my glory. Psalm 23, he leads us in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. He delays his wrath for his glory, according to Isaiah 48. For the sake of his righteousness, he made his law great and glorious. Isaiah 42, he exalted his name and his word above all things, Psalm 138. He blesses his people so his saving power will be known among the nations, Psalm 67. He saves people so they might live for his glory in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we're told to do it for his glory. You get the picture, but wait, there's more. Jesus sought to be glorified, John 17, so that he might glorify the Father. He died on a cross, John 12, 27 and 28, for the glory of the Father. He blesses his people by showing us his glory, John 17, 24. He's the head of the church so that in everything he might have supremacy, Colossians 1, 18. And when we live in new Jerusalem together as his people at the end of days, God's glory will replace the sun and will be the light by which we see everything. There's coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so Jesus is telling them this story of glory, but it's an upside down glory. It's not the sort of glory people seek in the world. People seek greatness. And Jesus tells them a different story. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and they will kill me. And when he's killed, it's the son of man, this Daniel reference, the ancient of days. He will rise in three days. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So you can imagine what this is like. Jesus is with his best friends. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be delivered in the hands of sinful people. And on the third day, I'll rise again. They're, they're going to 
brutally murder me in Jerusalem. And his best friends, oh, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Man, this is gonna be, I don't understand. What, can you explain that? I, please, no. No, no, they're walking along talking about who's the greatest, right? You can imagine the conversation. Well, we know it's not Judas, right? He's always digging his hand in the money jar. We don't trust him. He seems a little sketchy. And it can be Matthew. I mean, Matthew's a tax collector. He's not going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? Those guys are dirt. He's just lucky to be one of us. And then James and Peter and John start talking. Well, it's not those other nine. They didn't get to see him how we saw him. It's obviously the three of us. And here's Peter. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm the best fisherman, so it's probably me. I'm the best disciple, right? And John just politely looks at Peter and goes, Peter, I mean, no one as prideful as you would be the greatest, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's got to be me and James. And I, I say this in all humility. James is younger than me. It, it, it's, it's weird. I don't even know, but it's probably me. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably the greatest, right? And Jesus calls him to himself and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He just flips kingdom understanding on its head. And all this range of emotions, and they kept asking, they kept asking. He couldn't draw it out of them. The, the tense there he asked them, it's imperfect. He kept asking and they wouldn't answer, but they kept silent, it's imperfect. They kept not answering, they're embarrassed. And so he just teaches them. If any would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. That's what it looks like in my kingdom. And he's going to display this for them. He's not just their teacher, he's their model. He's our model. He was servant of all in the greatest of ways when he laid his life down for us, when he was killed by sinful men and then rose from the dead three days later. The greatness in his kingdom looks different than the kingdoms of the world. And so he teaches them, but then he gives them a model. He gives them a model, and the model is this. He takes a child and puts a child in the midst of them. And he grabs the child in his arms. Maybe it's, maybe it's one of John's kids. Maybe it's another disciple's kids. Maybe it's one of Peter's nieces or nephews. He grabs this, this kid, and he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, in this kingdom, it's welcoming in the most vulnerable. It's welcoming in the least of these. We're, we're helping people get to Jesus. And so John changes the subject. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. British theologian pastor Rico Tice says that Jesus is about to teach his disciples about a problem with their teamwork, a problem with their teaching, and a problem with their temptations. He says they have this tendency to compare and a tendency to control, and we've got to repent of both. So John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus, he says, do not stop him for one who does a mighty work in my name will not soon be able to speak evil of me. 
For the one who's not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So this is just like the disciples are not batting a thousand on this day, right? They're talking about who's the greatest when Jesus is saying he's gonna be crucified and then like 30 seconds ago, they can't cast out a demon, right? And then they see a guy who is and they go, Hey, stop, what are, what are you doing? Because he's not with us. I can't imagine the conversation where Jesus is just going, what, like, what do you think this is, a rabbinical school? Come on, I'm the Lord of glory. You couldn't cast out a demon and this guy is? There's a different way they could have gone about this, but they do what we tend to do. This guy's not with us, he's not one of us, he's not doing this how we would do it. One author says it this way, we'd all like to think that Jesus saw the world the way we see the world. And the way we conduct our lives is how Jesus would have lived his life. The functioning Christology for many Christians and most non-Christians is this, Jesus was just like us. Well, of course Jesus would think like I do. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? That's just kinda what we tend to do. The the reality is the reward for those who magnify Jesus is going to be glorious. And there are a lot of people who disagree with Chase Bowers on social issues, on cultural issues, on political issues, on how to handle things that are not gonna lose their reward. There are people who wear plaid with stripes and call queso cheese dip that love Jesus Christ. All kinds of other secondary issues. Jonah Goldberg says it this way, he says, among some Christians, offending our opponents and taking offense at their reciprocal efforts is now the primary means of cultural combat. There, there's a different way the disciples could have gone about this, though. Can you imagine? They can't cast out this demon and they see this guy doing this. And, and what if they walked up to him and went, oh, man, this is amazing. How can we help? I love what you're doing, man, this is great. How can we help? It would have looked so different. That's one of the things that I I loved about Temple Bible Church when I came on staff at TBC in 2008. I I came to be the, the missions pastor. I was part of the body and then came on staff. And one of the things that TBC had been doing long before I was a missions pastor and we still do and will continue to do is when we go and we work with international partners, we do not go as some Westerners do and go, hey, we're from the West and we know everything and here's how we're gonna help you, right? We look at them in their context and we just assume that they know what they're doing and we ask this question, how can we help? How can we help? So Scott Peter was Nepali Hindu, his wife Ronnie's from the Philippines, they met in a Muslim nation and came to know Christ, and now he pastors a Nepali fellowship there. So when you meet somebody like Ronnie, you wanna go, how can we help? His church in the Middle East has planted a church back in Nepal in his village. Or Pavel and Luba, our dear friends in Billy Tsirkov. You see these heroes of faith planted six churches, now I think seven in their city and surrounding villages. A hero of pastors in Ukraine who's now training other pastors, sending young people to do missions. And we get the privilege to go, how can we help? Or Salatio and Mary Rose in Rwanda 
north of Kigali in this rural area, they've planted 13 churches and they just keep training new pastors and planting new churches. And we get to say, how can we help? Or Lyndon and Janice in Estonia, the Webers went and served alongside them and we send people back. How can we help? We wanna be the sort of people who help others come to Jesus. We spend so much time criticizing how others do ministry. And I'll just tell you, in Rwanda, in Estonia, in the Middle East, in Ukraine, they don't do it the way we do it. Their church service looks different than our church service. The way they help the poor is different than the way we help the poor. They think differently about social and cultural issues than we do, but they're following Jesus. And if we just spent time preaching the gospel and being about making disciples for the glory of God instead of criticizing how other people are doing it, I think the world would just be transformed by the love and unity in the church. We wanna be the sort of people who help them come to Jesus. When I was thinking about this, I thought about America's greatest open water swimmer, a man by the name of Lenny Skutnik III. Anybody heard of Lenny? No? Martin L. Skutnik III? Lenny is an amazing open water swimmer, the most significant open water swimmer in American history, but Lenny has never won a medal. He's never been to the Olympics. No one's ever praised his dolphin kick. But January 13th, 1982, Lenny got his claim to fame as the greatest open water swimmer in American history. January 13th, 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 took off from Washington Reagan Airport. And as it did, it turned and headed down the Potomac River. And as it did, it hit a bridge and it plunged into the icy waters beneath. And it was an awful tragedy. 78 people died. Only five survived. And one of those five who survived was a lady named Priscilla Torado, and she survived. She's standing there next to Lenny. She survived because Lenny's America's greatest open water swimmer. See, there was a helicopter that dropped a line down with a life preserver, and she put her arm in it, and it was raised, as it raised up, it's so cold, and she's so weak from swimming in this freezing water that she can't hang on. She goes back down and there are a hundred people lining the bank after this crash. And one guy, Lenny Skutnik III, dives in and starts swimming toward Priscilla Torado. And you know what nobody did? Nobody went, why in the world is he wearing a business suit instead of a Speedo? He could go so much faster. Jim, have you noticed his form on his freestyle? It's really not that good. And if he shaved that walrus-like mustache, his aerodynamics would be so much better. Nobody was doing that. They're looking at this guy, doing it different than they would do it maybe, but going to rescue someone in deep need. And they're just cheering him on. He got a medal because of what he did. Oh, that the world would have some spiritual Lenny Skutniks with awkward mustaches and long things on, right? Not doing it the way that we would do it, but we could just cheer them on. There's somebody giving glory to Jesus because somebody gives you a cup of cold water because you belong to me. They will by no means lose their reward. 
They have a problem with their teamwork. Then he says, you have a problem with your teaching, as Rico Tice says. Oh, that his disciples would serve the least of these without any sense of pride and haughtiness. In verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or literally the word is stumble, scandalizon, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. See, if you sow seeds of doubt in the life of children or young believers, if you set an awful example, if you poorly represent Jesus, if you speak evil of him or his people in an unjust way, be careful. Be careful. Read in a commentary this week, Caesar, a couple of his children had bad tutors. They did not teach them well. And he took them and put them in the river Tiberias and tied large stones around them, cast them into the river. And Jesus says, if anyone causes one of my little ones to stumble, it would be better if you drowned and died an awful death. Be careful not to cause them to stumble. There's a problem with their teamwork. There's a problem with their teaching. And he says, be careful. You have a problem with temptation. Look at verse 43 of Mark 9. Jesus says in no subtle terms, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's saying, if anything is causing you to stumble, get rid of it so that you can come to me, come to life with a limp come to life, seeing things differently than you did before, do whatever it takes to come to me. He is not advocating literal mutilation, right? It's a metaphor, but it's a clear one. It's a clear one. And I, I think the disciples would have the temptation to do something I did this week when I, when I heard this. I think the disciples would have thought, you know what, Judas is, he's probably talking about Judas. His hand causes him to Stumble, he reaches in the money jar and he's pulling stuff out. His, his eyes cause him to stumble. He looks and he wants Jesus to be a different king than he ought to be. His foot's gonna cause him to stumble. He's gonna go and betray Jesus. But Jesus isn't just talking to Judas. He's talking to his disciples. And, and as I read this, this week, I, I thought about a, a dear friend whose hand is causing him to stumble and his eye is causing him to stumble. And he doesn't wanna cut them off. He wants to keep pursuing what he's pursuing instead of coming to life, and I, I thought, no, that's not what I need to do. I need to go chase. What, what's causing you to stumble? Is your hand causing you to stumble? Is your eye causing you to stumble? Don't let your stumbling lead you down a road to destruction. And Jesus gives a stark warning. He gives a stark warning. See, when we hear this, we tend to think we tend to think it's talking about others but I think he's speaking to us so third century theologian Porphyry said it this way people amputate some limb to save their lives be prepared to amputate the whole body to save your soul it's kind of this amplification of Jesus 
message. If you want to find life, you have to lose your life. You lay down whatever you have to lay down to find life. Now, we, we talk about this today, and kind of there's this thought, well, wait a second, Chase, it's the 21st century. You can't actually talk about hell, right? What are, what are you doing? We don't, we don't talk about that anymore. I had a friend named Damon who was a pastor, bivocational pastor, who mentored me when I was a young believer. He worked at a plant. And one time, there was a plant function in Houston, and he goes, and he's got a good Jewish friend there, and they would talk about matters of faith whenever they saw one another, and Damon's sharing the gospel with his Jewish friend, and his Jewish friend goes, right, Damon, I understand that, but you guys talk about all kinds of things we don't believe. You guys talk about hell, like there's an actual hell. Well, we don't, like there's no hell. And so Damon said, well, can I ask you a question? His friend said, yeah, and Damon said, well, where is Adolf Hitler right now? And his Jewish friend said, hell and double hell. See, we actually do want a sense of final justice that atheism and other religions don't actually offer. We do. When you think about what people do to children, you think about the dictators that have ruined the lives of sometimes millions, killed millions. We want a sense of final justice. We, we just don't want it to come to us because we put ourselves at the center of the universe. And when we do, we rob God of glory. So I would just challenge you today, don't be so close-minded to think that a just God wouldn't create hell. See, the reason it exists is because God has been robbed, the glory due his name. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in robbing him of glory, we lose the joy we were created to experience in fellowship with God. And as it relates to the doctrine of hell, I think God's glory may best be seen through his love that made a way out. There's this design. God created people to live in fellowship and love with him and with one another, but sin, brokenness, marred that relationship. And like our father, Adam and Eve, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God and and the wages of our sin is death. We're separated from God because of sin, but God in his glory made provision through the blood of Christ, who just like he told his disciples he would do, he, he lived and he died and he rose from the dead to give life to all who believe so we can respond and receive eternal life. See, perhaps as Christians, we need to stop asking why is there a hell and maybe start asking, do we care that people are going there. When I think about hell, I can't think about hell without thinking about the unreached. Unreached is different than unsaved. There are a lot of people in Temple who are not saved. They don't know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. But if you're in Temple, Texas, and you don't know Jesus, you've either heard about him and rejected him, or you've got a neighbor right down the street who hasn't told you. That's not the case in all the places in the world to be unreached is to have little or no access to the gospel, no Bible in your language probably, no believers, no church body. You can live and die without hearing the gospel. There are a couple of nations I was thinking about in the Middle East, one, the entire nation, the other, there's a region in the north of the nation where eight million people live and there are more people in our children's wing than know Jesus than the entire nation. There are more people in Creekside in Sunday school classes right now than in the entire nation. So we pray, we go, we give to missions and we send. The Deckers are right back there in the corner and they've just uprooted life and they're headed to Thailand to join the Smiths September 3rd. Bill and Christie in Lebanon and surrounding areas. 
We've got these people who've uprooted life and said, we're gonna go and take the gospel where the church doesn't exist. And we're gonna see the church exist there. And when I think about that, I, it breaks my heart, but I also get excited because I just wonder who's next. Who's the next family? We get the privilege of sending to the unreached. It might be you. Have you considered that it might be you? See, whether it's among the unreached or right here in our town, it could be that we doubt our gifts or we don't know how or we feel too busy or we've grown apathetic to eternal needs, but God calls us to make disciples and to warn people like Jesus warned. Inner life, however you have to enter life, lay yourself down so you can enter life. We make disciples for God's glory and the beginning of that process is for people to know the rescue, the forgiveness, the life available to them in Christ. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's Jesus, the servant of all. He's our model, he's our example, he's our substitute, and so we follow him. See, Jesus was transfigured on one mountain and disfigured on another, and in both instances, he shows himself to be the Lord of glory. And so we wanna give him glory. Would you bow with me for just a moment? As you, as you bow, today you, you might come and God might even use something like considering the awfulness of hell to awaken your heart, to stir in your mind your need. And would today be the day, a friend of mine did between services, came up to me right after the last service, and today's the day for this new friend. I believe, help my unbelief, that's the prayer. Is that your prayer today? Jesus, I believe you died for me. Would you help my unbelief? I want to trust in you. If, if you're praying that today, when, when we're done in here, come see me. I'll be right out in the lobby. Another guy out there with a t-shirt on, a lanyard, other people, anyone out there with a lanyard on, a pastor, or an elder here, love to visit with you about what it means to begin following Jesus, to live a life full of joy that gives him glory. Christian, what does it look like for us to be people who rely on God's power, who cheer one another on, who become the servant of all so that many might know Jesus, the true servant of all, the greatest in the kingdom? What does that look like for you today? God, would you guide us? Would you help us to know what it means for us to be great in the kingdom? What it means for us to lay ourselves down for the sake of others, to become the servant of all so that we might become like Jesus. God, I pray for friends in this room that are wrestling with what it means to know you and follow you. Would you help their unbelief today? And would you draw them to yourself? And God, help us to be a people who give you glory as we love one another and cheer one another on and continue to serve the King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.